Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark in the fifth chapter. I'm going to read beginning in verse 24. We will read through verse 34, this event from the life of Jesus. A large crowd followed Jesus and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. May God add to our understanding the reading from this His holy word. Amen. When I was mapping out this sermon series earlier in this year, I realized that all the examples of people having meltdowns were men. Uh, Now, I'm an equal rights guy. I'm an equal opportunity guy. So um, I tried to think, well, are there any women in the Bible who've had meltdowns? Um, I had a hard time finding any. I've got to be honest with you. You could say Sarah wife of Abraham, um, you know, when she couldn't have children and she was just done with it and she sets up Abraham with Hagar. But I don't know if that was a meltdown as much as it was just impatience and frustration. Naomi, I thought of in the book of Ruth. But she gets bitter. I don't know if she ever really loses. She just gets bitter, really mad. Then I I thought of uh, Jael, J-A-E-L, this woman in the Old Testament who found Sisera, the oppressive, cruel commander of the Canaanites, and how she took a hammer in her anger, and when he was asleep, took a, took a, a, a peg and drove it through his temple because of his cruelty to Israel. Yeah, that's a meltdown, I'd say. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that qualifies? But, gosh, that's so gruesome, and we got, we got children here. I don't want to talk about that this morning. I can't do that. can't do that. Mary, the mother of Jesus, think about her, but, uh, oh, she certainly doesn't have a meltdown. And the women in the Gospels, they are models of faith, as opposed to the men, the disciples. The women are great. It's the men who just fall apart. What's the deal? Do women not have meltdowns? Are women stronger than men? Is that it? What's going on? You tell me. A little murmuring out there. It's tough to find a woman in the Bible who had a meltdown. Then I remembered this woman 
who came up behind Jesus in the crowd and reached out in faith and touched him. This event, this, this woman coming up to Jesus is, is uh, in between uh, this other story. There's, there's kind of this story sandwich of Jairus, who, a man named Jairus, who comes to Jesus and says he has a 12-year-old daughter who is dying and he wants Jesus to come and heal her. I'm just going to... And these two stories come, are meant to be read together and they have some tremendous lessons when they're put together. But I'm just going to focus on the woman this morning. Jesus is moving along in a large, large crowd that's following him. Now, throughout these events, the large crowd and the amount of people that are there is emphasized because it's significant to what is happening. A man named Jairus, an important man, a ruler in the synagogue, comes to Jesus, and as I said, he begs him to come to his house to heal his daughter who's dying. And Jesus goes with him. Again, we're told there's this large crowd that is all around Jesus, and and they're pressing in on him. It's then that we're told of this woman. She is not named. She is bleeding, and she has been hemorrhaging, bleeding for 12 long years. We don't know exactly what the reason is for that. We don't know why it's happened. There could be any number of reasons. But one of the things this bleeding has done, this flow of blood, is it has made her unclean. Now, being unclean is a huge issue in first century ancient Judaism, uh, in the rituals, in the ceremonies. There's a whole chapter in the Old Testament just on being unclean. In the book of Leviticus, it says this. It says that when a woman is in, in her cycle or she's bleeding in any other way, she's unclean. Her bed is unclean. The seat she sits on is unclean. Anyone who touches her is unclean, even just if you just happen to brush with her. And if you are unclean, then you've got to wash yourself in kind of this ritual way. And you are considered unclean until that night, until the sun goes down. It also says this, you must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean. So they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place, which is among them. If you were considered unclean, you could not go to the dwelling of the Lord to worship with other people. You had to stay away. This woman, she's isolated socially, physically, and in every other way. Now, unclean is kind of a difficult concept to get in our world today. Think of this, maybe. You know when a parent says to a child, don't touch that brown stuff laying in the grass? No, don't don't go over there. Don't touch it. Or our reaction when a staggering drunk man comes walking down the street and we kind of keep our distance or go the other way. Or you know what we think about when someone has a reputation as a dirty old man. That is kind of what unclean meant in Jesus' day. You stay away, you don't touch them. And this woman has been like this for 12 years She had suffered, it says, tremendously from many doctors in her attempt to be healed. And you can imagine what kind of treatments and the type of things in those days that might have been done to her. In fact, a a book called the Talmud, which is a Jewish writing, a Jewish source of Jewish law and philosophy and history, um, lists, gives 11 different cures for a woman who is experiencing a a, a flow of blood that cannot be stopped. For example, one of the things is this. It says she should carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen rag in summer 
and in a cotton rag in winter. Here's another one. She should carry a barley corn which had been found in the dung of a white donkey. Now, had this woman tried any of these things? I wonder. She probably had. Uh, By the way, as for doctors uh, in, in Jewish writing, unlike today, they were not thought of very well. Doctors were underneath camel drivers. They were underneath donkey drivers. They were underneath sailors. Doctors had a terrible reputation. Nothing against the fine physicians at MOPC and that uh, st- uh, are filled in this congregation. But back then, it was not good to be a doctor. And we're told this money, that this woman had spent all that she had, all that she had trying to get well. You know, perhaps her physical condition had even weakened her. She was anemic. Maybe the doctors had victimized her. Maybe they had taken advantage of her, promising that they could do something for her, but not being able to deliver deliver on what they had promised, and they had just gotten rich off of it. We know that she was poor. We know that she was broke. And it is getting worse. Everything in her life is just in a downward spiral. The word in verse 29, for suffering, used of this woman, it's a rather graphic word. It means a torment or a scourge. It not only speaks of physical suffering, but it speaks of emotional suffering and shame that someone feels. This woman is desperate. Physically, financially, emotionally, mentally, in plenty of other ways, she is at the end of her rope. You know, physical suffering, financial suffering, emotional suffering, when it's intense enough, when it's long enough, can make us go into meltdown. And this woman becomes desperate enough to fight through the crowd, sneak up behind Jesus and touch him because she says, if, if I just touch him, I will be healed. And through the crowd of people, she gets close enough to Jesus where she reaches out and she touches him. Now we know what happens to people who come into contact with someone who is unclean, like a hemorrhaging woman. They become unclean. They're banned from approaching God in worship. What this woman is doing can get a lot of people in trouble, including herself. And when she touches Jesus, she felt in her body For the first time in 12 years, through physical weakness, being ripped off, feeling alienated, she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Just like that. I wonder what that felt like. And here's the thing. Jesus feels something too. It says Jesus feels power goes out of his body. Now, he starts looking in the crowd for who touched him. Now, this is kind of interesting. I think it's kind of strange. On the one hand, he has the power of God to heal. He's God. On the other hand, he's this human being with limited knowledge. He can't figure, he has no clue who touched him. It's kind of the mystery of the incarnation of of Jesus as God and as man. Kind of strange. But Jesus asks, who touched me? That is an interesting response, I think. I mean, did he ask that? Because usually when Jesus heals someone, he has kind of led the healing and he has kind of been the one who puts it together. But here he doesn't initiate it. Someone else has done that. 
And the disciples think he's being strange. After all, he's amidst a crowd. Jesus, you shouldn't be surprised. Anybody's touching you. You're being jostled. You're being shoved. But it says Jesus kept looking around. He's bent on trying to find who touched him. He won't let it go. And the woman, knowing without a doubt what has happened to her, that for 12 years what she has carried has now been powerfully and miraculously it's disappeared, she reveals herself. This is the rest of her meltdown because she falls at the feet of Jesus, it says, in trembling, and she is scared. When you fall down to the ground, shaking in fear, you know what? You're having a meltdown. She may be healed physically, but there also could be hell to pay for being where she was, touching who she did when she was unclean, according to the Scriptures. And you know how people are when someone breaks the Scriptures. But Jesus isn't like that. And he calls her daughter. When do you think the last time anyone called her daughter was? When do you think the last time anybody called her anything of love, a term of compassion and tenderness? Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And be freed from your physical ailment and all the shame that it has brought you. When do you suppose was the last time anyone gave her a blessing of peace? Jesus says it was her faith that healed her. Funny, I thought it was the power of Jesus that healed her. Maybe it's faith that comes to Jesus that makes his power effective. St. Jerome, the old saint, the Bible translator, said, that woman's touch on the hem of his garment was the cry of a believing heart. If it was faith, what does that woman's faith teach me, teach us about faith? This woman was desperate. She was uncertain. She was willing to take a risk. You know, faith is not necessarily when we have it all together, when we have all the knowledge, when we have all the answers. Faith is desperate. It is uncertain. It is when you take a risk. Faith is reaching out, I think, for Jesus in our troubles and in our circumstances when we're desperate, when we're uncertain, when we need to just take a risk. Remember those friends who dug that hole in the ceiling uh, and lowered their friend th through the roof to get down to Jesus because it was so crowded. Je it says Jesus saw their faith. Remember blind Bartimaeus yelling when he hears Jesus is coming by, yelling and yelling to get Jesus' attention. Everybody else is trying to quiet him and saying, you're making a spectacle of yourself. And he won't stop until he gets Jesus' attention. And Jesus heals him and said, it was your faith that healed you, Bartimaeus. And even Jairus, who this woman is interrupting, his his time with Jesus. Jairus has come to Jesus, reached out and says, I need you to come. I need you to come to my house. Faith is a persistent reaching out to the Lord. Faith doesn't even have to be perfect. This woman's faith is not perfect. Quite frankly, to think that touching a piece of a cloak is going to bring you healing, I think is a little superstitious. Don't you? For many of us, 
You know, the thought of Jesus healing or doing something miraculous, a miracle happening through faith as Jesus, that's something that's hard for us. We struggle with that, I think. Because we've been taught to have a closed, flat worldview. What if we're wrong? What if there is more going on in the world than we've been taught or led to think with our kind of rational, scientific worldview? I'm not saying those are wrong. I'm just saying, what if there's more? What if those gospel writers are absolutely right that there is something going on that can't be fully explained, it can't be fully contained by all our ways of coping? We all wonder. We all have doubts. We all have questions. But, you know, we place a lot of confidence in certain assumptions about the way things are. What if it's different? When Jesus heals or when he does a miracle, I think he's pulling back the curtain. He's kind of pulling back the curtain and and showing us how things really are. Because maybe what we call supernatural is the way the world really is and what we call natural is really not what God intended it for it to be at all. I've got to quote a Methodist here. Will Willimon's a fine preacher. He's a bishop down in the uh, Methodist church down south. Uh, I like him because he's just full of sarcasm too. But uh, he wrote something that he, he really made me think. He wrote this. He said, We value predictability, order, and control more than surprise, mystery, and wonder. We tend to think of our world as closed, rigidly following certain natural laws so that the line between natural and supernatural is obvious and unassailable. The first thing the modern world had to do in order to give us the illusion that we were gods unto ourselves and in control of everything was to close off the possibility that God might intervene or intrude into the world. So if you start out with the assumption that miracles don't happen, don't be surprised that you conclude that the miracles of Jesus didn't happen. Lots of people were touching Jesus that day and in that crowd, but they were touching him casually. They were touching him unintentionally. They were just touching him out of curiosity or just because they were were near. Only one touched him in faith. And this is the thing. It's like this. Are we ever desperate enough? Are we ever desperate enough to reach out to Jesus? I mean, how many things will we try before we actually turn to Christ and say, you are who you are, you're real, and and I reach out to you? How many of us walk in and then out of here week after week, month after month, year after year maybe, and and we're carrying problems and we're carrying diseases and we're carrying burdens and we're carrying struggles and anxieties? We never tell anyone. We never let anyone pray for us. We never let anyone uphold us, let alone come and lay hands on me and pray for me. I need the touch of Jesus. That woman reached out to Jesus. She was not interested in saving face. She was not interested in remaining respectable. She was desperate. One Sunday earlier this year, after this service, um, a couple people in our church 
mother and father, Perry Ng and Lei Ling Chan, uh, came to me and, and asked if I and Sherry Bogart, our director of children's ministry, would come with them down to the prayer room. We have a prayer room right down the stairs. And would we pray for their young son, Elliot? And um, those of you who know Elliot, when he was born, I guess it was about six years ago now, Elliot spent the first 103 days of his life in the hospital because of um, some serious bowel issues that he had. He had some surgeries. We, we would go to the hospital. We, many of some of you went. We prayed for Elliot, and, and he came out of that experience very healthy, very well, very strong. And any of you know Elliot, boy, he is a uh, he's all boy, and he is just active and, and full of life, and, and has just done incredibly well. But there was a two-week stretch earlier this year, right before that Sunday, when Elliot began to experience some deep stomach pain, and you can understand why his parents began to monitor this. And Elliot became lethargic, and he didn't want to do anything, and he didn't want to eat anything, and that is not the Elliot we know and love. That is totally uncharacteristic of him. Every night he was waking up with an uncontrollable pain, waking up his parents, and they weren't sleeping. And, and now his parents are both doctors, well, that Sunday morning, Leiling came and she just confessed she was at the end of her rope. They just didn't know what to do anymore, and it was getting so bad. They tried to do everything they knew how to do. The night before, they were just about ready to go to the emergency room again. And so we would we'd just come down and pray for them. So we went all down to the prayer room. I did, Sherry did, Barry Leiling, big sister Samantha and Elliot, and we just prayed for Elliot. We just prayed for him. We just asked Jesus to touch this little boy. Um, I don't think anybody felt any power going out from them. I don't think anything strange happened in that room that I could tell. But from that moment on, the pain went away. And since that time, Elliot has never had any pain. Now, reaching out for Jesus is not, a, it's not a guarantee of immediate change, but sometimes it can be, or it can be the breakthrough for things to start changing. It takes a certain risk. It takes a certain desperation. Even if we come to Jesus as our last resort, we're coming, we're coming, and He will accept us. We might struggle with the temptation until we can't fight it any longer, and we cry out to the Lord to save us. We might struggle with some responsibility until we just become exhausted and we are at the breaking point and we cry out to the Lord, just give me strength. We might struggle to be good in some way and we find we just fail and fail again. And in our utter frustration, we come to Jesus and we say, I just need you to touch me. I need to touch him. A meltdown can be a great opportunity to touch and to be touched by the Lord. It often isn't until we come to the end of ourselves that we can really begin with God and He can begin to move in us. At the end of our worship service this morning after our blessing, um, I'm just going to be up here at the front to be part of a circle of prayer. For anybody who's desperate enough, anybody with just even a little faith, 
who might be carrying a burden or need physical healing or is struggling with some temptation or some anxiety or needs to stand in for somebody else you know, wants to be a part of that circle, just come up. We're going to pray together. You don't, have to, you don't have to say anything. You don't have to say what it is. You don't even have to pray. I'll pray. I'm going to pray for all of us in that circle of prayer. Just ask that we touch Jesus and that Jesus touches us. Amen.